Almost exactly a decade ago, a new bright-eyed class of students entered Harvard Business School in September 2008. One month in, something happened that nobody could have anticipated. The economy completely fell apart. The world experienced the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. At a time where the future looked uncertain and bleak and taking career risks was probably the last thing on any rational person's mind, something magical happened at Harvard Business School. In just a short time window, the foundation for multiple multi-billion dollar companies was being laid. Rent the Runway, Blue Apron, Plated, Stitch Fix, and Birchbox. In episode 21, I caught up with Haley Barna, co-founder of Birchbox and current general partner at First Round Capital. One of the famed consumer success stories of the last decade, Birchbox revolutionized the application of the subscription e-commerce business model to beauty and retail. Haley helped the company raise over $80 million in venture capital, generate $100 million plus in annual revenues, and deliver products into the hands of over a million monthly subscribers. In her current role at First Round, Haley is focused on finding the next crop of great consumer companies. Haley, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ramin. Thanks to be here. So Haley, I'm really excited to talk to you today on a bunch of topics related to startups and venture. But you know, first, let's start with a bit of your background. You, know, you went to Harvard undergrad, worked at Bain & Company for three years in New York, and then to Harvard Business School for your MBA. Talk a little bit more about your early path and how it ultimately led you to founding Birchbox. Yeah, that's a great question because I feel like the things that you listed on my resume are not actually the, <laughs> the reasons <laughs> that I ended up being a founder. Um, and I think that, you know, becoming a founder is something that, like, requires your whole self. Um, and when I look back, I just feel so lucky for the really wide ranges of experiences that helped get me to the point of, like, starting my own business. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's too much to go all the way back to, to childhood, but I, but I do think um, – that that some of what made me a founder was the fact that I that I grew up in a family that uh, was running a multi generational family business. Um, so I was exposed to business around the dinner table from a very young age, um, and so it was demystified to me in in that respect. Um, and at the same time, my mother. Um, has a PhD in psychology. So she's a trained research scientist. So I had these two parts of my upbringing, which were sort of this like capitalist, um, run businesses, make hard decisions, all of that. Um, but also was always trained to be uh, inquisitive, um, asking questions and thinking about how, how to gather data in order to get answers. Um, so when I went to college, um, I thought that I was going to maybe do engineering and computer science. And unfortunately, I'm part of the statistic of women that don't end up um, completing degrees uh, in those areas. But instead, I focused on social science um, and in particular, uh, economics and psychology. So behavioral economics did a lot of, um, took a lot of classes and spent a lot of my summers doing research about consumer behavior and decision-making um, with, you know, I was in Cambridge. I went to Harvard, so I was working at the MIT Media Lab with Dan Ariely, who's now become like a multi-time best-selling author um, and also working with uh, professors like Al Roth and Max Fazerman. Um, like I was pretty academic in terms of my pursuits. Um, 
but I just love thinking about how people make decisions with money and how often it can be irrational, and that definitely informs the business model behind Birdsaw. Um, and then, like, funny things, like, during college, I worked for the newspaper, but I wasn't a writer. I was doing graphic design. Um, and when it comes to, like, starting an e-commerce business, especially in the early days, it's definitely useful to be able to do your own Photoshop. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, like fast forwarding from there, when I was in business school, I interned at Amazon. Um, so I was sort of like within the, the mothership of e-commerce um, and happened to be placed into a group, which was at the time called the Digital Music Group or Amazon MP3, um, where Amazon was not dominant. Um, so there's not many categories uh, within Amazon where they're not the number one player. Um, but at the time, um, and I think, they probably still are the number two player compared to Apple. Um, and that sort of showed me, um, I like took back to campus, not only as the like best in class, how do you run an e-commerce company? Um, but I knew that there were some categories where Amazon could be beaten, especially with like a brand forward um, and more editorial consumer centric approach. So honestly, I could go on and on, like basically my whole life prepared me to start Birchbox. And then meeting my co-founder and all of her life experience prepared us to be like the best team possible to have this crazy idea um, and to make it happen. Yeah, I think a couple, you know, a couple of the nuggets that you pointed out there are really interesting because they're very unique to you. Um, and I think oftentimes founders, you know, especially folks that are, you know, high performers or going to the business schools, et cetera, these days are trying to find a problem to start a business as opposed to a problem coming to you. And, and I think one of the really yeah. interesting parts of your journey is actually, let's add some social context, right? It's 2010, and it's the depths of the recession. So it's not 2017 when you guys decide to start an idea where you know, being an entrepreneur is cool and there's, there's ample funding. You, know, you decided to forgo the safe path and start the business. And you, know, you talked a little bit about how um, you know, your, your family background itself helped, uh, with that. You've talked about previously how your parents encouraged you, you know, to work for yourself and, and capture the value you create. You've also talked about, you know, in the past, how having no regret moves and, and taking a risk is, it has considerably less downside than, you know, what at first meets the eye. So, you know, talk a little bit more, you know, about both of those points and, and maybe others as to how they played their respective roles in your decision-making process. Yeah, so it, it was a really interesting time to be at Harvard Business School. I showed up, um, you know, early September 2008, and then, like, the economy collapsed a month later. And so we were sort of safely ensconced within, uh, within business school and not, you know, out there where some of our friends were losing jobs and, you know, the stock market was crashing. Um and ironically, I think it was the fact that the economy was going through what it was going through that meant that a lot that me and a lot of the, my classmates and my cohort ended up doing what we were really passionate about. Instead of being given like early high paying jobs to go do the traditional stuff, um, like if we had been given high paying private equity jobs or like you know basically things that would take us away from being like, well, what do we really want to do? Then maybe we wouldn't have started Birchbox and, you know, the runway was started at the same time. Blue Apron Inflated were started by people in my class. It's, it's crazy just the, the amount of entrepreneurship that happens. Um, 
even though it was a downturn. Uh, so I actually think it was motivating and not debilitating. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned it before, there's different types of founders. Um, there's, there's founders that are dead set on running a company one day and they systematically search for the right idea, um, whether it's the one that has the most upside or the one that's their best fit to do. Um, for me, it was the idea for Virtuox sort of like found, found us um, and it was just too good <laughs> and too exciting not to work on. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable taking risk, but I'm also a very data-driven person. Um, so what we did was we actually did a proof of concept and ran a beta test while we were still students. Um, and in my head, I was like, okay, well, if we can prove these three things, then, you know, there's a there there. Then it's okay for me to graduate and, you know, not take the offer to return to Bain to do consulting, not take the offer to go back to Amazon, um, that it's worth it to, to work on this. Um, and I really used that framework um, in terms of that's it. <laughs> Beauty brands will work with us. These consumers will pay for samples for the first time ever. Um, my co-founder, Katya, is a really good foil to, like, me and my data-driven frameworkiness. Um, and she just, like, from the second that we had the idea and we started talking to Beauty Brand, she knew in her gut that it was the right thing. Um, but, but we basically were able to both um, come to that conclusion before graduation. And in 2010, just to add another kind of juncture or context to that period of time, you know, world economy was falling apart, but subscription e-commerce also wasn't a thing, right? It wasn't a world that we live in now where everything is on demand or everything's in a box. You know, talk a little bit more about the experience of starting a business, you know, not only at that point in time, but with a fundamentally unique business model, right? What were the implications for, you know, raising capital, hiring, and, and your balance of planning versus executing? You talked a little bit about you know, the actual you know, running pilots and, and running a proof of concept in business school itself? We, yeah, the business model um, is definitely quite popular now, but it was very unique at the time that we created it. And it was really born out of our personal needs as consumers. We were just like, what frustrates us about uh, the existing options for buying duty offline and online and what's the right solve for us as consumers? Um, and then, of course, we had to take the same sort of questions and apply them to the beauty brands. Um, you know, retail was one of the hardest hit industries in the recession. And beauty brands, especially high-end beauty, their bread and butter was the department store channel. Um, and those channels were suffering and they were shrinking. And we, we had to think, okay, there's something that the consumer wants to be better here. Um, but there's something that the brands need. And we had to solve for both in terms of creating the business model, which ended up, you know, the best way to describe it is this uh, try, learn, buy, um, you know, hybrid of a marketing and retail channel um, that helps connect brands and products to customers and help customers discover the right products for them. Um, we, it, it was challenging for sure. Um, it was very new. We had Still it, um, we had to use, I think we used basically the, um, the analogy of Sephora meets war meets fruit of the month. You know, we had to break it down into things that people understood. Um, and we definitely needed to do that proof of concept and gather those proof points and that data in order to get the funding. Um, but, 
you know, honestly, I think it was it was the right time. Like that's that's why it worked. The retailers, as the brands, they were they knew they needed a digital channel. They knew that the department stores were going to do it for them. They didn't want to be on Amazon because Amazon's just like a database. It's not a beautiful editorial sales channel. And you know, they probably launched their own websites, but they realized they couldn't drive new customers there. Um, and then at the same time consumer behavior had shifted and consumers were, were had been trained to be interested and excited about new ways to shop. Um, you know, Guild Group was launched a couple years before us um, out of the recession, right? The fact that there was all this excess inventory of luxury and designer goods that could be discounted and like that was a really fun way to shop, and consumers were excited to find other fun and efficient ways to shop, and, and we were part of that trend. Yeah, it's interesting because you know you fast forward to 2018, um, and and the business by any objective measure is is a large success, right? The company's raised over 80 million dollars in capital, and I you know that sometimes is used as a marker of success, but I think the true marker of success is. Not only did you raise a bunch of capital to have impact, but then you actually had impact. The business has generated, you know, over a hundred million dollars in annual sales, found a path to profitability, and and in many ways you know, revolutionized beauty. And and in fact, to your point on Amazon, it was interesting to me just this past week, Amazon actually announced its own beauty sampling service. So you know, possibly a little bit of influence from uh, the way that Birchbox is shaping the world. You know, at, at the same time, it's, you know, Birchbox is certainly, you know, as any hyperscale growth company has also seen its fair share of challenges. You know, 2016 had a couple rounds of material layoffs and, and the company really went through a focus period of time in which it had to decelerate growth to manage profitability. I'm curious to hear from your perspective as, as a founder, as well as the, you know, co-CEO through the time, you know, through the highs and the lows, what were really the most important lessons you learned as a leader? And then what were the most important things you learned about yourself? Yeah, great question. And honestly, I think I should like continue to <laughs> sort of ask myself that. Um, you know, the, I, I really feel that like two ways about the Birchbox story. That like when people say, oh, congratulations, it's so amazing. I have to like stop and say thank you because um, it is pretty incredible what we've created in terms of you know, having over a million monthly subscribers receiving um, first boxes and loving it. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, and, you know, the story of the, of the company is still evolving. Um, so it, it doesn't feel like, uh, you know, something that's neatly tied up to the bow. Um, it's, I mean, it's incredible how much I learned from the experience of conceiving of starting and growing Birchbox. Um, my job fundamentally changed every six months at least, right? So the second that you think that you've, um, that you've like tackled something, there's, there's a new challenge. And, and frankly, that was why I loved it so much um, is because of how quickly things are changing. Um, but I think like, you know, reflecting on lessons learned, like business-wise, um, definitely comes down to people and culture, right? Like, in the beginning, it was about the business model and, like, how elegant it was and how everyone's incentives were aligned, and that was amazing. Um, 
and then it became about customers, which is launched in terms of you know making sure we were building something that really worked for the consumers and the brands, and you know that's what really kept me up at night. Um, but as the business scales, the, you know the CEO's role becomes a lot about the the people that work for you um, and making sure that they have the right resources, um, that they have the right that they know where the business is heading and why. Um, and that really became uh, the focus for me in the last few years of working at Birchbox um, and the thing that I'm proudest of in terms of the, the culture that we were able to create um, and amazing people that are now like hopefully lifelong friends um, that, that I worked with at Birchbox, um, some of whom have now gone on to start their own company. Um, and hopefully they take a little bit of the like culture of Birchbox with them. Um, and I think the other thing in terms of business lessons is, you know, you outlined a little bit uh, in terms of our ability to you know, grow significantly in terms of revenue. And, and frankly, we did that raising um, a relatively small amount of capital compared to other e-commerce companies. Um, and I'm quite proud of that. But recently, we definitely had to readjust um, and focus on profitability over growth. And there was a tough adjustment period there. Um, and I think we got caught up in a fundraising environment and a cohort of companies that were like chasing big funding rounds and big valuations um, and running their businesses thinking that the money would always be there. Um, and as the market adjusted, we had to adjust. Um, and so if I could do it over, I would definitely make sure that we continue to, you know, grow because we have big ambitions and spend to grow, but making sure we did so in a way that we always had um, control of our own destiny in terms of not needing the next round of funding um, in order to continue that growth. Um, and then, you know, where's it culturally <laughs> a bunch about myself as a leader. Um, and I think like one of the, like balance was one thing I had to learn, like definitely started the Birchbox journey sprinting, um, not taking care of myself in terms of like health and personal relationships and needed to pull back and understand that, you know, in order to do right by my team, um, in order to role, role model good behavior, I had to have more balance there. Um, and then also like vulnerability as a leader and being comfortable not knowing all the answers. I think, you know, I became a CEO relatively young, um, having been you know, basically just a, three years as a consultant with my professional experience and then obviously some internships and stuff during business school. Um, but I have been in in the role where I always wanted to have the answer. Um, and I think I had to shift in terms of being comfortable not knowing answers um, and knowing that that didn't make me a less capable leader um, in terms of sometimes saying, here's the problem, don't know what the answer is yet, looking for input, but here's the process we're going to follow. And now that, that was, that's even better than having to answer yourself. Yeah, absolutely. No, a lot of, a lot of interesting and good lessons there. And I, I wonder how they actually parlay, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your experience now, you know, at first round as well. But before we get to first round and, and your role as a venture investor, I'm curious as to, 
you know, how did you, I imagine that was an incredibly hard decision, right? Leaving a company you founded, led through inception to scale, you know, as you mentioned, how, how did you think through that decision and, and kind of what, um, what got you to the point where you said, you know, I want to move on from Birchbox to, uh, to first round? dive into, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels that, you know, founder operators turn investors can kind of draw. So I want to get to those. And, and as we kind of lead into that, you know, section of questioning, your transition to first round is really interesting to me because of, you know, particularly the fund that you've joined, right? First round is known to be very founder friendly, has a lot of innovative projects like dorm room fund, first search, et cetera, also going on, but also because of the dynamic that venture is going through right now. Um, and I'm curious, you know, as a as an early stage, seed stage investor, what your perspective is on, you know, the abundance of capital that's that's coming into the markets right now. You know, there's there's this adage in venture that capital doesn't scale, and in some sense, and by definition, capital above you know optimal capacity will get a lower marginal return, right? And there's also this notion that increased capital availability can be disruptive for talent allocation, right? More folks starting companies and spreading talent more thinly as opposed to, you know, clusters of talent forming, which could drive increased value creation. On the flip side, and this is a little bit part, you know, of the YC mantra, but you could argue enough capital actually isn't being allocated to the space, you know, excluding SoftBank, which, you know, of course, is a recent phenomena. Um, all of private venture tech investing has historically you know, roamed around the $50 billion mark or so, which really, when you, you, know, when you hear it, is a, is a very large sum. $50 billion is a lot of money. But in context, it's only about 
of what the largest 500 companies in the world you know, generate annually via dividends and buybacks. So you, you can make the argument that the abundance of capital at the seed stage is actually is great because it allows more projects to actually have a chance at getting off the ground, right? Without seed stage funding, you know, Birchbox probably wouldn't have gotten off the ground, right? So what do you think about the current state of seed investing and, and how do you approach um, you know, your mental models as, as an investor? Yeah, so I think first of all, my my decision to join first round to become a seed stage investor uh, was was not one that was like, oh, what's what's like the best asset class or the place where there's the most arbitrage or <laughs> all of that. For yep. me, it was a personal decision based on what I'm most motivated to do um, and where I have the most impact. Um, in terms of the state of seed investing, um, I agree with some of what you said in terms of, yeah, there's a lot more capital um, being put to work at the seed stage, uh, especially than there was when we were raising the seed round for Birchbox eight years ago. Um, from a founder perspective and just like my perspective as a human, <laughs> um, I'm excited about that. I think it's great that there's more capital available. It's great that there's more sources of that capital in terms of different funds with different strategies, with different people making those decisions, that there's uh, you know, angel investors who are making decisions based on their like old personal lens. Um, and, you know, part of, I, I feel so grateful for the people that took a chance on me and Katia when we started Birchbox, both the angel investors and, and the funds. And, you know, I want, I want more people to have that opportunity. Um, but in terms of what that means for like the returns of the asset class, I think it definitely has implications. Uh, the, Valuations at the C stage have gone up significantly um, since since we raised money um, at the C stage for Birchbox. Which you know, if you're buying in at you know twice the price than you were back then, that means that the exit needs to be you know at the same multiple higher or more. Um, and not only have the valuations increased, but the size of the rounds has increased. Uh, and, you know, for us, in first round, as a relatively large seed fund, we're able to adjust our strategy um, appropriately. Um, and, you know, that means for us, we're just putting larger checks in and investing in bigger rounds um, than we were five years ago. Um, but frankly, I think it's the right thing for the companies. Um, I think that because there are more, like, I, I, I end up doing a lot of consumer investing, and it's pretty interesting to see how now, um, if you see a deck on one concept, chances are in the next three weeks you're going to see two other people <laughs> working on the exact same thing. Um, there's just, there's a lot of activity and a lot of businesses being started, and um, capital is one way to ensure, not that I don't like when people raise capital to protect against the downside, but when they raise capital to ensure upside in terms of hiring the right team, in terms of being able to lean into things that are working in order to grow quickly. Um, so I, I feel 
that the larger rounds um, are better equipping these teams to be successful in this environment. And how do you think about, you know, having been an operator and now being on the other side as an investor, how do you think about aligning founder and investor incentives, right? Especially around, you know, that point of scaling quickly and, and from your own personal experience, frankly, about, you know, growth and profitability. And, you know, just as a little bit of context for our listeners, right? Venture is a slugging percentage game, right? It's not a game of, you know, how many singles can you hit? It really is, you know, can you hit a grand slam? And, you know, with portfolio theory being at play, investors are often incentivized to make decisions in which, you know, aggregate value creation can be very high, but that might, you know, cause detrimental impact or repercussions for, you know, specific companies, right? Whereas being a founder, it's the exact opposite. You don't have stakes in multiple companies in which, you know, losses can subsidize the wins. Um, you know, you, you have one company that you're, that you're working on. So how have you found, you know, what, what's your perspective on, on that generally? And, you know, how have you found, you know, being, having been an operator and an investor really impact, you know, your empathy towards founders and, and, you know, the guidance you provide on decisions related to aggressive growth versus sustainability? And part of the 
reason I joined First Round, to be honest, is that we have a, we have a belief that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to support the founders. Um, and we will always give founders, like, our unvarnished advice and opinions. Um, we will tell them what we think, and we won't pull punches, but we will always support them. Um, and if we're supporting them in terms of taking that $50 million acquisition offer, even though we think that it could be $500 million if they just waited, um, we support them in that. And that reputation is so important to this business. And at at Adaptance, it's really a human business that we want to support the founder in making that decision so that then we have a chance of investing in their next company when they decide to go along. Um, And and that's, that's how we think about it. Yeah, I, I think bringing that perspective to the table itself is unique um, and, and incredibly helpful. I think there's another piece, which is, you know, your, your move to venture is not to be undersold. I think we've been, you know, a couple of questions we've kind of been talking about it casually, but you, you know, you became the first female general partner in first round's history, um, which is a tremendous accomplishment on, on one side and in an absolute sense. It also makes me personally take, you know, a little bit of pause at the state of venture and, and the tech community. You know, you've, you've talked about how in the past, you know, when starting Birchbox, and you, you mentioned it, you know, you look forward to the rent, the runway team as inspiration. And, and meanwhile, and right behind you in business school was, you know, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, who probably had the picture of last year when, you know, as the youngest female founder to take a, comp- a company public, she rang the NASDAQ bell with her toddler in her arms. You know, and, and at a time when culture in the tech industry is at an all-time low, uh, it's hard to see a week go by without an you know, influential male VC or executive, you know, not misbehaving or being caught up in some scandal. How do you think about, you know, a improving the environment for you know, women and, and minorities and just underrepresented folks in general in tech? And B, you know, what are your thoughts on improving the pipeline for these populations to rise to just more affluent positions in, in venture and startups? Um, adventure 
Patriarch can be that role model for like the next wave of women. I'm happy <laughs> um, to you know, do podcasts like this or sit on panels and just generally talk about my experience in an open, honest, and authentic way so that hopefully people can see themselves in me. Um, and in terms of the pipeline, like, I don't think it's a pipeline problem, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to uh, in the investor population, right? Like, there's just not that many venture investors to begin with. Like, it can't be that hard to find qualified women, right? It's, it's <laughs> not like we're not, we're not the biggest industry. Um, and there's... I heard, it hasn't been published yet, but I heard that, like, based on some database, the percent of female investing partners in the last year went from 7% to 14%. Wow. Um, and you've probably seen it in the headlines that, like, a lot, that means that a lot of the new hires, probably close to 50% of the new hires have been female. Um, new hires are promoted. Um, and so part of me is, like, oh, yeah, right? Like, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty fast change, and I feel great about it. Um, but then I also have to, like, check myself and say, like, what? Like, only 14%? Like, that's ridiculous. There's no reason that it shouldn't be 50% fast. And I think we need to, as an industry, make sure that we are not, um, that we're not hiring for the, the, the female partner. And that, like, oh, we have one. We can stop now. Um, and it's instead that we're really aiming for parity. Um, and underneath all that, I always feel like I need to say that, like, as much as women are underrepresented, there's underrepresented minorities where the statistics are even worse. Yep. Uh, so we can't let the, like, gender conversation overshadow the fact that they're, uh, in terms of Latino and black investors and founders, like, So switching gears, I want to round out our conversation with a, with a couple of personal questions. You know, when, when you think back to all the people that have had an impact on your journey, what are the lessons you've held, you know, most dear to your heart? And as a follow-on, if, you know, there's a particular person or so that's inspired you the most, who would that be and why? And I know that in and of itself could be an hour, day-long conversation, um, but, <laughs> but would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and published a paper um, on that 
research, and I was like 17 when I did that. <laughs> and it's not because I'm brilliant. Like I, it's not, but it's just because I did it. Yep. Right. That I was willing to take time out of like soccer practice and like hanging out with my friends <laughs> to reach out to scientists to ask them to mentor me to give me lab space um, to you know do the experiment and then to write it up and to just like simply get it done. As a final question, and, and I think you might have alluded to it, frankly, already, um, what's the one piece of advice you wish you know, more people internalized as they were starting out their careers, right? Classmates of yours from HBS, um, you know, classmates of mine, myself included, you know, people coming out of HLS, et cetera. What do you, what do you wish more people internalize? And what's, you know, what's the big takeaway you think is critical to think through as you know, folks think about you know, careers and, and you know, their life paths? I don't know if I can say something super profound here, <laughs> but I'll, shoot, I'll, I'll, I'll take, do it two ways. Um, the first is that I think like the most interesting work happens sort of at like the intersection of different fields um, or where that it's like, it's not just head on consensus, what everyone's doing at the time. Um, and, I think that's sort of always worked well for me. Um, but in terms of how I think about career choices, I I have the, like two voices in my head whenever I make career choices. Um, like one voice is saying like, "Haley, you've got to there's there's one right answer here. Figure out which one is the best choice, um, or figure out which one is the the right decision and optimize it." And then, like, the other voice is saying, this is a journey. You know, you will do many things throughout your life. Just choose the one that, like, feels right right now. Um, and for me, that usually comes back to the ability to learn um, and the people that you're working with. Um, and so whenever people come to me asking about career choices, I say, like, calm down. This isn't, like, a be-all, end-all. It's not going to determine the rest of your life. Just, like, figure out what this right next thing is um, and there will be other next things in the future. Well, Haley, this has been, you know, an incredibly insightful conversation and just, just a lot of fun. So, you know, thanks again so much for taking the time and, and really sharing, you know, your fascinating story with all of us. Yeah. 